early stages material. Uh, it's new material for me, um, barely out of the kitchen, if you will. So it would be very helpful to have your feedback. Um, one of the uh, questions that's been in the back of my mind while preparing this material is uh, trying to grapple with some of the historiographical issues relating to 18th century North India. Um, most of my uh, doctoral work was on the 19th century and looking at um, transitions and changes in intellectual knowledge systems, particularly relating to music. And obviously, if we're going to try and think about what changes occurred in the colonial period, we need to look back and actually see what the state of the field was in the 18th century. So this is something I'm trying to begin uh, here. And as we all know, for a long time, the 18th century was seen as something of a dark age in Indian history, an era of political chaos as the Mughal Empire began to disintegrate. And over the last decade, social historians have re-examined this period, and we're all familiar with the Aligarh debate. Um, and more recently, literary historians have considered the diversification of cultural production, noting transformations in language and form, and the articulation of new kinds of social identity and political affiliation. However, an abiding shadow from the older Dark Age model is the notion of decadence and the idea that pre-colonial kings were inept rulers who lost sight of their political responsibilities because they were too busy amusing themselves in beautiful palaces. And it's tempting to view this characterization of decadent kings as a colonizing discourse, a local variant, if you will, of the oriental despot, despot trope that has seeped into Indian historiography. And elsewhere, I've explored this idea of uh, decadence in the 19th century context, when self-indulgence and despotism were prominent themes in the case made for the annexation of Awad, for example. If we move slightly to the West, James Todd made similar kinds of assessments of certain Rajput rulers, such as Maharana Jagat Singh II. Addicted to pleasure, his habits of levity and profusion totally unfitted him for the task of governing his country at such a juncture. He considered his elephant fights of more importance than keeping down the Marathas. Like all his family, he patronized the arts, greatly enlarged a palace, and expended 250,000 in embellishing the islet of Pichola. Now, although Todd's criticisms, especially his concern with financial mismanagement and luxurious consumption, were conditioned by changes in English attitudes to civic responsibility. This form of judgment and the assessment of rulers was not only a colonial discourse, but corresponded with a language of critique developed by the Indian contemporary literati. Under the High Mughals, Indo-Persian chronicles narrated cautionary tales, warning rulers against overindulgence and losing oneself to a life of pleasure. Prescriptive literature, such as the Mirzanama, identified the symptoms of degeneracy and warned the ruling classes against cultivating bad habits or the wrong kind of companionship. In the 18th century, these criticisms were deployed to mock rulers through vernacular poetry. And we might think um, a famous example being the satirical verses of the Urdu uh, poet Sauda. Commentaries on historical events written in Braj Basha described decadent and negligent politicians to set the scene for catastrophe. Emperor Muhammad Shah Rangila often fell victim to this line of attack. In uh, the poet Tilok Das's narration from around 1750 of the events leading to Nadir Shah's invasion in 1739, 
he describes the neglect of government in the imperial court. So here's a sample verse. Muhammad Shah, Emperor of Delhi, who was our ruler, found great enjoyment in numberless pleasures and nothing else. He stayed at home, oblivious to the business of the court, the kingdom, and society. Now see the state of that king. He gazed full of love like the chakora at the moon. He drank wine and ate kebabs. He went mad of intoxicants. Seeing he was drunk, they came to the court for favours. Music was played on dolak, tambura, sarangi, and flutes. See, my lord, the Shah listened to it all in his court. And these kinds of critiques were also produced within courts themselves. I hope you can see this. It's quite far away, possibly, for some of you. The artist Nihal Chand was employed at Kishangar, where he painted portraits as well as illustrations for the compositions of the poet king, Savant Singh Nadridas. While most of these paintings celebrate the, celebrate the lavish festivities of the court, some of his more humorous works depict gross caricatures of ugly rulers presiding over orgies on pavilions littered with wine bottles and musical instruments. Hope you can just about make it out. Um, I have a lot of paintings in this, so if any of you can't see, feel free to move forward. In this paper, I'm going to interrogate the cultural life of two quite minor Rajput courts with a particular focus on music. As exemplified in both Tilakdas's verse and Nihal Chan's painting, music was often emblematic of self-indulgence. The Mughals considered music, an, and I quote from uh, Catherine Schofield, an oral manifestation of sentiment and especially love. At its best, music could guide the listener on a spiritual quest into the heart of emotion, while at its worst, it could lock irresponsible men in an inner realm of pleasure. Um, and I'm going to be using some musicological sources which probably aren't familiar to most people in this room. So I'm just going to quickly explain the kind of materials I'm dealing with. Vernacular writing on musicology uh, proliferated over the 17th and 18th centuries. In conversation with Sanskrit Sangeeta Shastra and Indo-Persian Ilmi Muziki, North Indian intellectuals produced new works in Brajbhasha and Maithili, and latterly in Urdu and Bengali. There were several common modes of writing about music, and these modes all sort of overlap, but the three main categories are theoretical treatises, song collections, and ragamalas. Um, and for those of you who aren't familiar with a ragamala, the idea is that the building blocks of uh, a musical composition is the rag, sometimes it's loosely translated as, as a mode, and the idea is that this is sort of the grammar of composition, what you do with the notes, but each one of these rags has its own associations in art, with specific emotions, with times of day, with deities, and visual representations. And there was a big fashion in the 18th century in particular to describe these icon iconographic visualizations of the rags, sometimes with uh, poetry, sometimes with a painting. And what I find particularly interesting about the musicological material written in the vernaculars is the variety of them. Um, so you might have something like this on the right, uh, on the left, uh, the Ragdarshan of Krishal Khan Anup from Hyderabad. And this was a beautiful text, um, clearly designed as a luxurious object in its own right, the material object, but with exquisite poetry, with uh, musicological uh, definitions, but also with paintings. On the other hand, you have what I have on the right, a Ragamala Kosha from 19th century, and it's a very, very small manuscript. Um, and it's, I think it was very much designed to fit in people's pockets 
and it's a quick um, app, if you will, for identifying rags because it's got uh, the bare essentials of how to recognize it in poetry, some uh, musicological information, how to identify particular notes in a rag, and, um, and also what to spot in a painting. So these were sort of designed for connoisseurs going around potentially being confronted with paintings, with poetry, uh, or actual musical performances, and they could quickly bring this manuscript out of their pocket and consult, consult it and show off to all of their friends. Um, so you get a variety of different kinds of material, and I'll talk about a few in this paper. But first of all, I'd like to begin with an example of musicology in a slightly unusual setting. And this is a story that may be familiar to some of you called, um, well, it's usually called the singing donkey, but I call it the donkey musicologist. And the idea is that once upon a time, uh, a donkey was good friends with the jackal. This is relevant, so please, please keep listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, they were good friends, and every evening they would sneak into a farmer's field and eat cucumbers. And over time they kept doing this and became more accomplished at it, and the donkey grew reckless, and he said one evening to his friend the jackal, well, I'm going to sing for you while we eat. And the jackal doesn't want to hear his donkey friend singing, and so he says, this is a terrible idea, you're going to wake up the farmers, we're going to be caught. And the donkey is very rash about this and says, no, trust me, I have a beautiful voice, you want to hear me sing. And the jackal says, really, donkeys have a terrible reputation, you know, I don't want to hear this. And the donkey is so um, upset by this that he recites some Sanskrit music theory um, to show precisely that he's um, completely au fait with musicology. And seeing that he won't have his way, the jackal says, okay, fine, and retreats under a bush. The donkey starts singing, but of course he's braying loudly. Uh, he wakes up the farmers who come in, uh, beat up the donkey, tie a millstone around his neck and leave him unconscious. The donkey eventually stirs and, being a donkey, has forgotten about everything that's happened and gallops away. And the jackal uh, slyly looks up and um, says, what, um, I use someone else's translation here, well sung, uncle. Uh, why would you not stop when I told you to? What a necklace. Yes, you wear music medals, rich and rare. So he's combining the millstone to a medal for his musical achievement. Now, why am I telling you this story? It was preserved in the Panchatantra Compendium of Animal Fables, specifically in the Jain recension known as the Panchakyan. In this case, the moral, the moral is to listen when your friends advise against a rash course of action. The this spe specific tale dates back to at least the 12th century, and it was transmitted as an accessible form of guidance in Niti, uh, what one scholar has called the art of getting along in the world. The introduction of the collection presents these stories as a form of instruction for guileless princes, though scholars have noted that the text seems to be directed more towards ministers and advisers rather than rulers themselves. The Panchakyanika proved popular in early modern courts. The Royal Library of Mewar contained three illustrated vernacular versions and a copy of the series as transmitted in Arabic, the Kalila Wadimna. Since the text was considered to hold practical political advice in a digestible format, we might ask what courtly readers had to learn from this story and the rest of the Panchatantra. The tale of the donkey has several lessons to impart. The I told you so victory of the jackal, an animal that reappears across several of the stories in the role of a minister, 
suggests that the tale is a reminder to kings to pay heed to the counsel of their advisers. The experience of the donkey sets out several expectations for rulers. He is toppled by his rash behaviour, his pride and his delusional self-confidence. He might be able to recite the principles of music, but at the end of the day he's a brain donkey. Self-restraint, dira and propriety were key virtues in courtly literature. But at the same time, it is really striking that in this text, which is set up to advise rulers about how to behave, they have inserted this Sanskrit musicological theory into the middle. This was part of the curriculum for rulers. And so the tale indicates the antiquity of the tension around connoisseurship. Expertise in the arts was vital, but it cannot be allowed to get out of hand. So as that is, with that as the background, for the rest of this paper, I will consider this tension around the intellectual and social context for music and connoisseurship in two courts, uh, Banara and Uniara. Um, in 1748, Sirdar Singh of Banara wrote the Sura Taranga, the Wave of Notes, a Brajbasha work which drew together aspects of the three musical genres, the theoretical treatise, the ragamala, and the song anthology. This was an impressive work of scholarship, but I would argue it also subtly reflected on the precarious politics of Sirdar Singh's reign. So Banara is a small kingdom 90 miles northeast of Udaipur, and it was maintained through a series of alliances and diplomatic ties. Sirdar was a Sisodia king, so was ranked as a premier noble in the kingdom of Mewar, designated under the elite Sola category. Sirdar became Raja when he was 10 years old, and it seems that one of his first allies was the Maharaja Abhay Singh of Marwar, who brought Sirdar to Delhi twice to present him to the court of Muhammad Shah in the 1730s. On the second occasion, when Sirdar was around 14 years old, he received permission from the emperor to build a new fortress. In fact, work does not seem to have begun on the fort for at least another decade, but taking the emperor's permission was a significant statement of prestige in itself, marking the young Sirdar as an authentic member of the Mughal imperial system. However, by this period, um, this kind of affiliation offered very little reassurance. In the 1730s, the Marathas were gaining ground in the Rajput territories, and neither the Maharaja of Ambar or the Maharana of Mewar were successful in their attempts to build a strong Rajput confederacy. Peshwar Bajirao, <laughs> Ranveer Singh, just to wake you all up, uh, <laughs> visited Mewar in 1736, and in his delicate negotiations with the, with the Maharana, he demanded the cessation of Banara. In the end, the Peshwa was not given Banara, but he was paid one lakh rupees and an annual payment schedule was arranged as tribute. While the Rajputs were especially conscious of the threat posed by the Peshwa, Nadir Shah's incursion three years later highlighted the vulnerability of the Mughals. Over the following years, Siddhar positioned himself closer to Udaipur, entering the service of Maharana Jagat Singh II in the early, seven, uh, in the early 1740s. And through his seven wives, Sirdar also connected to smaller Rajput houses. Um, and you can see throughout his career and also in some, I've only found one, um, one local history from Banara so far in Sanskrit with Hindi translation. And you can see that the ho his whole career is about building up these diplomatic ties because there's the pressure from below, from the Marathas and the weakening of the Mughals on the side. 
Uh, in the 1750s, however, Sirdar became involved in Mewar's success succession dispute following the death of his ally. And then Umad Singh of Shapura marches on Banara in December 1756 and ousted Sirdar from his fort. Ultimately, Sirdar dies in exile in Udaipur. Now, returning to the text, Surah Taranga, it was written in 1748 when he was 25, at a time when the Rajputs were overcome by internal feuds that highlighted the vulnerability of kings at his rank. The Maharana had recently quashed a rebellion by his son, but was then losing a campaign he had started against Ishwari Singh of Amber on behalf of his nephew. There are lots of names. Rajput history in this period is very messy, so please bear with me. Further afield, Amber had attempted to change the ruler of Bundi, leading to a drawn-out confrontation which unsettled the Rajput territories and revealed the insecurities of minor kings. Although the Suraturanga was explicitly concerned with music and songs, this political context seems extremely relevant, since Sirdar used the text to articulate several claims, invoking his, dynast his dynastic affiliation, declaring the beauty of his domain, the strength of his fortress, his divine protection, and his connoisseurship. Sirdar foregrounded his family history at the front of the text, hailing from a junior son of a former Maharana, Raja Singh. So, so this is from the, the start of this music treatise. Raja Singh was the colossal Rana, lord of the land of Chittor. The brilliance of his honor shines over Hindu soil like the sun. His son was Pima, glorious and victorious like the Pima from the Mahabharata. His son was Suraj Rajmal, who bestowed fine donations without reservation. His son, Sultan Singh, became the lord, a warrior of the house of Mewar, again linking back up to the Maharana. The son of Sultan was Sirdar, who wrote this book, Meditating Upon Hara, so Shiva. Aside from staking his familial connection to Mewar, Sirdar also distributed kingly virtues among his ancestors, including heroism and generosity, and gave his great-grandfather the strength of Bhima in the Mahabharat. As Dawud Ali has noted, building up one's fame, Kirti, was not only about leg legitimizing one's authority and pedigree, but also came with tangible benefits, since reputation was fundamental to developing a career in court or expanding one's network of loyal nobles. Next, Sirdar described his kingdom in glowing terms, elevating Banara through literary conventions. He then claimed the protection of the goddess Chamunda, who protected him in his fort. She is with King Sirdar under the side glance of her grace, sitting in the foremost fortress, there rules Sirdar the Lord. I composed while on this land the beautiful fortress was sealed, not the slightest fear remains. Enemies fear the one who dwells there. There in the court sit excellent bards, poets, and learned people. Women like Saraswati assemble and dance together. In this context, Sirdar presented his own uh, composition, a digest of learned writings on music, so Sangeeta Shastra. Um, Rag, Tal, Notes, their varieties and seasons, several have written down these mysteries. They are made one in this straightforward book in the tasteful language of men. Listening to the presentations of all the connoisseurs, my heart was infinitely delighted. I have cast forth this book, naming it Wave of Notes. Melodious, learned poet king, thus they entreat Sirdar, great beneficence came to them for their opinions. So, it's always good to be a sycophant in court. These verses convey a set of related but distinctive claims about Sirdar and Banara. 
Firstly, here Banara is not simply a peripheral fort in the constellation of Mewa's feudatories, but a cultural centre, elevated by the scholars and artistic personnel retained there. Secondly, the text is an intellectual production that reaches beyond the space of the court and the kingdom and engages with a larger literary universe. Sirdar is at ease with musicological theory, has read the written canon, and is rendering it in the Barsha, integrating his work into the broader enterprise of vernacular literateurs. Thirdly, Sirdar has not commissioned a poet to write this work for him, he claims, but he himself has consulted with experts and digested their knowledge into a new book. The entire text therefore testifies to his status as a melodious sugara and learned supandita, poet king, Bhupakavi. Why was Sirdar so keen to represent himself as an intellectual and connoisseur of literature and music? The Surah Taranga needs to be read while keeping in mind the longer history of courts and prescriptive courtly literature from the Gupta period, which continued to inform practices in the 18th century. The court was a society, one that was internally regulated through codes of behavior and modes of thought. Dald Ali has reminded us that the pre-modern court was not a symbol of governance, but the actuality of the state. Courtly societies are not limited to the built environment of a palace or a per peripatetic imperial camp. They are constructed through the circulation of tribute, material objects and trained personnel and disseminated through ideas and practices which require the involvement of different professional groups and service providers. The symbolic system of, of courtly culture provided a vocabulary to articulate one's social and political position. Successful merchants, for example, styled themselves in the manner of kings and adopted royal practices of cultural consumption and patronage. Likewise, the temple could be envisaged as a royal court with the god as the resident king. Accordingly, courtly and cultic rituals informed one another. Ritual, symbolic, and culturally meaningful practices defined these spaces and served as forms of socializing and integrating mechanisms that created an exclusive interpretive community. Dald Ali has stressed the pedagogical function of Sanskrit literary texts, which cultivated the normative expectations and obligations of these elite communities, distinguishing the high life, the uttama, from the low, the adama. Crucially, elite status was not assumed on the basis of birth or wealth, but cultivated through specific Shastra-informed means, upaya. Ali documents the crystallization of these modes of cultivation under the Guptas through genres such as Kavya, prescriptive texts such as the Arta Shastra and Karma Shastra, which promulgated, and I quote, a set of commensurable values and codes of meaning shared from one lordly household to the next. These values were enshrined in the ideology of enjoyment by which kings were understood to enjoy their realms and their subordinates' domains, an ideology which was elaborated upon in courtly literature, enumerating royal enjoyments, upaborga, pleasures, vinoda, and sports, krida. The man who comprehended and embodied these codes was the rasika connoisseur, the living paradigm of sophistication, repose, and a higher order of being. But I would argue we also have to bear in mind that Sirdar composed a work specifically on music, since musicology had a very particular political resonance. First of all, musical culture had the quality of a stamp of authority, endowing patrons of intellectual, social, and political prestige that would be recognized anywhere within the Mughal episteme. 
In numerous images of rulers from across the subcontinent, we find detailed, often named, portraits of musicians and carefully curated selections of instruments. The appropriate deployment of music and dance as a sonic and visual status marker was almost compulsory, regardless of your personal disposition. For example, according to one Persian chronicle, Alivardi Khan, the Nawab of Murshidabad, uh, between 1740 and 56, quote, did not show much inclination for such accomplishments as dancing and singing or for an intimate society with women. Yet he understood the arts, was fond of exquisite performances, and never failed to show his regard to the artists. So what this chronicle is saying is even though he didn't like music or women or dance, he still did his duty and patronised them and respected them in his court. Second, musicology was a diverse and flexible science that drew together different kinds of intellectual text and conversation. Before the 19th century, most works on music were not concerned with practical techniques, but rather with the theoretical foundations and poetic resonance of the manipulation of sound. Because music could only be understood by engaging with philosophy, mythology, anatomy, physics, mathematics, yoga, erotics, tantra, and so forth, the musicological text served as a platform upon which to present multiple forms of expertise and connoisseurship. Third, we should also consider the social place of musicological works as performed texts. Many works, including this text, the Sura Taranga, contained lyrical portions or whole song collections, which would indicate alternative forms of consumption rather than silent reading. Beside the songs, ragamala descriptions were also performed in courts during dance recitals. Given that musicological texts spoke directly to the ties between man and sound, their being uttered in courtly settings may have provided nuanced opportunities to announce the brilliance of political players in elite settings. Fourth, certain performance practices and sound arts had specifically royal connotations. Specific ragas, such as Sri, communicated valour and the virility of the king, while instrumental ensembles, such as the Nobat, were markers of the presence of the ruler, the broadcasting of his fame. In the Mughal sound world, playing drums near the imperial residence was an act of rebellion. Military bands literally shook the enemy in chronicles, and Muslim saints could demolish idols by banging a drum with pious conviction. And finally, we need to think about rag not only as a category of melodic structure and composition, but rather as a vehicle for real affective power. Rag was theoretically understood through the relationship between the heavenly bodies, physical vibrations, the production of sound or notes, svara, the, um, the, the building up of a rag, and the experience of hearing it. Treatises uh, examined the metaphysical basis of the rags and their place in the universe, while poetic ragamalas mapped out their connotations and their supernatural properties. The attention paid in these works to the physical and affective power of the rag underlines its significance as a tool, both for self-mastery and manipulation over one's environment. The coercive, magical potential of music was attested in treatises as late as the Madan or Muziki from around 1860, which noted that rag Deepak had fallen out of use because of its dangerous ability to start fires. Since musical studies explored these properties at length, these kinds of texts operated like atlases to the effective universe, mapping the relationships between man and his environment. At the same time, the Ragamala in particular was a text of pleasure, offering a digestible 
poetic and visually attractive object, despite its esoteric substance. The crafting of these texts and albums demonstrated not only knowledge, but also the subtle power of their authors and patrons, indicating that they were students and connoisseurs not only of music, but also of the very uh, foundations of reality. And these facets of the musicological text can be identified in Sirdar's own composition. The Suratranga is first and foremost an anthology of songs arranged by Rag, prefaced by a light introduction to music theory. Sirdar outlined the notes of the scale, their sources of inspiration in nature, and then worked his way through a long ragamala sequence. Despite his claims that he consulted on the varieties or mysteries, the Bheda, of music, in fact, his treatment of Sangeeta Shastra is extremely elementary and cursive. He briefly mentions Allah and Murchana, and then states that there are three forms of dealing with rag through the heptatonic, hexatonic, and pentatonic scales. I won't get into it, but it is strange that he picked that out of all of the rest of music theory to draw on, but um, I don't have a solution for that. Uh, he bypassed major Shastriya topics like Nada, Shruti, the yogic body, uh, let alone the intricate arrangements and subdivisions of notes found in most Sanskrit treatises. And this is very much a vernacular turn in the way of dealing with this kind of knowledge, which we can come back to if you want. Likewise, his treatment of the rags was not especially technical. After very brief descriptions, he turns to song lyrics. But his interest in rag was in its affective potential, associating the power in music to the god Shiva, his uttering the fifth Veda, and the preservation of that sonic potential in the work of divine musicians such as Narada and Tumbara. Um, so this is his, uh, a verse he wrote on musical sound. Even stones melt when they hear its tune. Even snakes emerge from hell and listen in. How many fine deer sacrifice themselves or bees brighten their dwellings? Listening to that sound, they give up their bodies. Their bodies waste away. Now I find this quite interesting because particularly the reference to deer sacrificing themselves for music, which is a very common image, and the Orpheus-like quality of the master musician became a very pervasive trope, not least in Ragamala paintings, where Vena players um, attract wild deer to them, um, particularly Ragni Tori. This poetic image was not merely a romantic fantasy, since there is some evidence of musicians being used in hunting parties. Uh, the Rajputs commonly brought drummers, specifically of Dole and Tasha, in their hunting troops to scare and trap tigers, while one sketch from Kota depicts a Veena player luring deer towards him, ready for the hidden hunters uh, to pounce. Deer were a particularly appealing and romantic emblem of tamed nature, and certain Rajput courts kept pet deer in the inner apartments of the palace compound. They often have gold collars. The manipulation of nature through music had an explicitly political resonance. A Pietra Dura image of Orpheus, completed in 1648, was set behind Emperor Shah Jahan's throne in the castle arm of the Red Fort. Um, that's it there. Um, yeah. While the notes were inherently potent, Sirdar echoed older treatises in his description of specific powers associated with particular rags. So, um, the parish Babula tree turns green just by singing Bhairav Rag, the attendant gunners of he whom the world knows spread forth. Singing Malkosh, the bow is strung, the swing swings hearing the song of Hindu. Intoning Deepak produces a light like a lamp without burning. Hearing a tune in Sri, Raj blooms. Sirdar says, as Meg Raj gathers, the clouds rumble and storm clouds pull down without restraint. 
Um, and with all these verses, because I'm short on time, I won't usually read out the brudge, but it's important to, to look back at the original text because this really is clearly a text for, for recitation. Um, and he is a very fine poet. He is not a particularly uh, sophisticated example, but, you know, megagara jata gatagana varasa amanahe. And he, he does beautiful things with um, alliteration and assonance throughout. Um, as a lyricist, rather than a theoretician, Sirdar was perhaps more attracted to these iconic associations of the rags than the intricacies of semitones. His careful phrasing indicates that he was interested primarily in lyrical composition, which he viewed as evidence of his regal connoisseurship. Uh, at the bottom, uh, the one in whose body there is rag, rang, and ruti has a radiant mind, free of suffering, free of fears or maladies in all things, precisely so is King Sirdar. Since the body of the work was taken up by lyrics, Sirdar provides a summary of practices to avoid when singing. Um, I, w I won't read them all out, but uh, these lists of good qualities, uh, guna and defects dosha, are a standard component of musical treatises and provided guidelines for discerning patrons, things to look out for in order to judge musicians so as not to humiliate oneself by praising an inept singer. Interestingly, Sirdar does not include good qualities, but only flaws. Uh, he refrained from using technical terms um, and described most of these bad habits very straightforwardly. And again, in the Sanskrit uh, treatises, there's a much more sophisticated technical language to describe what's behind these flaws, but he's not really that interested. Um, yeah, very quickly. Uh, I should actually use an example of one of the songs, since the body of this text is songs. Um, these are extremely diverse, and uh, he covers an array of meters, styles, and subjects. And I haven't uh, finished, by any means, my study of these lyrics, but I believe that they might provide insights about the circulation of genres between cultural centers. For example, Sirdar includes a number of Khayal lyrics, and Khayal, uh, for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, is now one of the main genres of Hindustani uh, singing, um, and it's noted for its uh, beautiful, very technical manipulation of notes, and it's really one where the expert singer can show off by doing wonderful tricks with his scales. I studied it for a year, and it was a disaster, um, so I've got a special reverence for it. Um, so... Here's uh, an example of one. Um, uh, I won't read it out, but um, again, it's it's sort of a fairly standard theme. A woman pining for her lover. The summer is coming in. The monsoon is coming in, but her lover is not there. So everything about the summer torments her. Uh, so peel peel goes the pied cuckoo. A frog, that malicious sinner, torments me. And again, the cuckoo and the frog emerging in the, in the floodwaters, etc., are all um, evidence of her lover not being there. I have not considered these lyrics in detail yet, but the inclusion of the kyle may be significant. By the 1740s, this genre had been known for over 100 years and had been considered classical since at least the 1660s, but was at this time enjoying a new phase of popularity in Delhi. There, the most celebrated form was a style associated with the kawals attached to the sheikhs of Barnawa, which was um, an important Chishti lineage based in the Delhi area. According to Catherine Schofield, the kawals form consisted of a song lyric in a regional language combined with a tarana. 
In the 1730s, the genre had become very popular thanks to the compositions of Niamat Khan Sadarang, a court musician with connections to the Kawals. But besides the Delhi style, Persian music treatises note other deshi varieties of khayal, distinguished by region and language, especially the Marwari type. Further examination of these lyrics in the Surah Turanga may provide insight into these regional forms of khayal and shed light on musical conversations between the Rajput and Mughal circles. What does the Surah Turanga suggest then about musical culture in a setting like a small court like Banara? The king is not a passive playboy, idly entertaining himself with music. Sirdar was a scholar and able poet, selectively drawing upon a canonical science to frame his compositions. The music book had a political resonance and diplomatic function. Sirdar articulates his connections to Udaipur, brands his own fort as a prestigious cultural centre, and perhaps uses song choices to cultivate a sense of cosmopolitanism. Crucially, Sirdar was conscious of Raag not as an amusement, but as a vehicle of power, and by representing himself as a connoisseur of Raag, he presented himself as a master of himself and of his environment. Now, Sirdar's senior wife was a Naruka princess from the royal house of Uniara in the state of Amber, the second court in my discussion. Uniara was a similar-sized kingdom to Banara and was located in one of the richer areas under Jaipur's influence. It was also strategically significant as Rantambore Fort was, is very nearby. Although Uniara is almost unheard of today, the 18th century court was also deeply invested in music and the arts. While my discussion of Banara has examined the literary tools of the courtly connoisseur, the Rao Rajas of Uniara gesture to the larger aesthetic ideals of pre-modern elites and demonstrate how these cultural tools could be deployed. Um, and like I say, Uniara is very uh, off the grid at the moment and it's been very difficult to try to uh, reconstruct the history of, of this town. Um, and one a resource that music historians have um, is the family histories of hereditary Gharana musicians, uh, which sometimes aren't particularly chronologically verifiable, but do provide very clear and very thorough frameworks because your family history is how you market yourself. Um, and so um, I can get into the historiography of Gharana later if you want. But uh, Uniara features in the family histories of major hereditary Gharana musicians, especially of the Drupadia artists of the Dagarbani, hailing from Atroli, a village near Aligarh, the UP Aligarh. One of these families had a steady presence in Rajput courts in the 19th century, most famously Aladia Khan, uh, who was employed at Uniara for some time, where he studied with his uncle, Jahangir Khan. The Atroli lineage is said to have much older connections to Uniara, stemming from Dulu Khan and Chaju Khan, who are believed to have been retained by the court in the 18th century. Now, what I find interesting about this is that these musicians were especially significant from the point of view of caste. The family held a special status by claiming that their ancestors were Sandilya Gotra Brahmins who had converted to Islam while serving in the Mughal court. And throughout their history, this allowed the musicians to rank themselves both as exalted Kalawant Darbari type artists while loosely maintaining the aura of high caste. Employing these musicians uh, formed at Uniara 
formed cultural ties with Mughal Hindustan, but also other Rajput courts where they were employed, especially Jaipur and Tonk. Beyond these memories, though, of Dulu and Chaju Khan, so far we know nothing about the musicians employed at Uniara. However, the visual and textual archive relating to music there is quite significant. Painting in particular seemed to have been cultivated from the 1740s under Sardar Singh, um, uh, who drew in artists migrating away from the besieged and impoverished court at Bundi. The cultural productions of Uniara present a very peaceful, leisurely existence that contrasts with a record of desolating violence and political upheaval. Um, so for background, over the 1750s, Uniara was caught in the middle of a drawn-out struggle between Jaipur and the Marathas over tribute and the control of Rantambur Fort. Madal Singh of Jaipur extracted payments from Uniara in order to pay his own tribute to the Marathas, which was five lakhs per year. Uh, Balaji Bajirao had his army loot and burn Uniara's uh, territory in 1758, claiming tribute from the king, Sardar Singh. Finally, these hostilities culminated in the Battle of Kakor, also fought in Uniara in 1759. At the same time, all sides were conscious of the Afghan warlord, Ahmad Shah Abdali, so Madal Singh instructed Uniara to negotiate a peace treaty with the Marathas. These negotiations were unsuccessful, and Uniara was forced to pay more heavy penalties to the Marathas. And then in the 1760s, the Mughals complicate things. Uh, Sirdar was made Rao Raja Bahadur by Shah Alam II, but this angered uh, Jaipur, who sack, which sacked Uniara and also demanded tribute. Mado, uh, it gets a bit of Game of Thrones here, sorry. Uh, Mado <laughs> plotted to have Sardar succeeded by one Indra Singh, whose followers then murder Sardar's son, Prince Jaswant Singh. Sardar had meanwhile exiled his second illegitimate son, Maha Singh, who became the bodyguard of his father's oppressor, the Maratha leader, Maha Rao Holkar. Uniara continued to be pillaged and manoeuvred by both Jaipur and the Marathas until 1777, when Sardar Singh died in the aftermath of a devastating battle. Sardar was succeeded by his grandson, Bishan Singh, who similarly faced disputes over tribute and a series of destructive incursions throughout his reign. Altogether, Uniara had been besieged and plundered for 50 years, ripped apart by the larger hostilities between Jaipur, the Marathas, the Mughals, and the Afghans. However, this drama did not deter the rulers of Uniara from investing their resources in cultural patronage, and the arts seemed to have blossomed in the same period. Uh, Sardar's leading artist, Mirabagas, was commissioned to illustrate beautiful copies of the Bhagavata Purana and the uh, Ramayan, which highlighted the king's Vaishnava piety and situated his family in ornate, luxuriant settings. Sardar's two sons, the murdered Jaswant Singh and the exiled Maha Singh, were depicted hunting or watching dancing girls in their zananas. These cases of artistic exuberance in a time of political crisis conform with the usual characterization of the 18th century, which suggests that rulers neglected real politics, allowing their kingdoms to fall apart while they selfishly amused themselves with courtly entertainments. A kinder argument which is often put forward is that the rulers were overwhelmed by their situation and invested themselves in the arts as a distraction from hard times, but this is inadequate. Since diplomatic negotiations and wars were ongoing, it cannot be said that the rulers abandoned political responsibility altogether. So 
what I want to do here quickly is just look at some of these cultural productions and see if we can come up with a different way of interpreting them. The Zanana portraits of the princes do not indicate an unbridled passion for women so much as a dignified appreciation for beauty and emotion. In both cases, the princes are watching musical entertainments, which, as already noted, had explicitly political overtones, and are surrounded by a crowd of adoring women. The portrait of Jaswant Singh contains smaller tableau registers, representing women in situations reminiscent of Raag and Nayaka descriptions. These were not random portrayals of concubines, but allusions to theoretical literature on poetics, such as the Raska Priya of Keshavdas, illustrated copies of which were also prepared in Uniara at the same time. The portrait of Mahasingh um, is found in a wall painting from the Jagatshu Romanji temple in Uniara, uh, the temple which I showed earlier when I introduced um, the town, over one of the principal doorways. The image accompanies pastoral murals of Krishna as a cowherd. Juxtaposing the prince and his concubines with Krishna in Braj places Mahasingh in conversation with traditions around the god and his many gopi lovers. This is reinforced by an adjacent image of Krishna and Radha sitting in a rustic pavilion, blurring the lines between the pastoral and the courtly. Crucially, besides the pavilion, Mahasingh's portrait appears a second time, now as one of Krishna's gopas, one of uh, the cowherd companions. So the prince is projected into the sacred imagination, and mythological allusions spill over into the courtly domain. And by arranging the paintings over the temple doorway like this, the artist literally drew a line between Krishna as divine lover, Mahasingh as Krishna's devotee and companion, and Mahasingh as lover. And this technique of projecting courtly patrons into a Krishnite imagination was extremely common. This precise arrangement is also found in a portrait of an Uniara noble who is rendered as a princely cowherd in a form of what we might call ornamental partialism. Projection could take many forms according to the conventions of the chosen genre and the possibilities of uh, the influences behind it. However, it is apparent that by the late 18th century, artists, poets and musicians applied a highly developed aesthetic of projection in their works. Vaishnava tropes were paired with the older ideals of the courtly Nayak, and images of Krishna and Radha became archetypal lovers. So this set up a Krishnite undertone to representations of the Nayak, when portraits of courtly patrons were represented in courtly riti works, they became the historical embodiments of abstract aesthetic ideals, coloured by the Vaishnava imaginaire. This projection of the ruler as a Nayak extended into Ragamala imagery and paintings inspired by Kaukashastra, celebrating the patron as a connoisseur of gesture, emotion, love and sex. Ragamala paintings from Uniara also demonstrate the aesthetic of projection. One series uh, with Brajbasha inscriptions portrays a Nayak with the likeness of Bishan Singh, uh, Sardar's grandson and his successor. So he's putting himself his portrait as a Nayak into the middle of a Ragamala. Uh, even the verses that are centered on the experience of the woman in a relationship to describe this particular Raga, um, nonetheless, the painted visualization draws focus to the meaningful gestures of Bishan Singh as the romantic hero. 
Bishan Singh's portraits were extremely considered and meaningful. His style of dress often imitated the Maharajas of Amber, his principal allies, um, although they're also regularly looting and pillaging him. Uh, in a more distinctive painting, Bishan Singh has been uh, beautified. Uh, his eyes classically elongated like lotus petals, translating him again into the vision of a Nayak. Here he is finely attuned to his environment. His floating muslin garment echoes the birds. The swirling hem mimics the rippling sky, and he walks barefoot over the lush grass and wild flowers. Of course, these apparently natural elements were markers of urbane sophistication. The transparency of the white muslin was an overt display of wealth, while even the doves gesture to aristocratic uh, pigeon-keeping, um, which the Mughals loved. Uh, these elements underline that Bishan is not a Nayak by accident, but rather through the informed appreciation of the finer things. This balance between uh, quiet martial political strength and sensual enjoyment is mapped out onto the other men of the court in another portrait from Uniara. And I'm not entirely clear which ruler this is, unfortunately. The Darbar is filled with shields, a handful of katars and swords, while the haloed king has once again a collection of weapons at hand beside his uh, hooker. The Rao Raja sits with his retinue watching the dancing girl. And um, what's particularly interesting is all the men in attendance are represented in attitudes of very animated, responsive listening. Some raise a hand with pinched fingers, others extend both hands with open palms, feeling the music between their thumb and first finger, and there's a, a, a growing uh, music, uh, musicological literature about gesture and audience reaction, and this is straight out of the textbook um, from that point of view. Uh, the king himself sits with his hooker pipe in one hand, pinching the air with the other, a gesture reminiscent of the Jnana Mudra, but in the immediate context, he seems to be mimicking the raised, hennaed hand of the dancing girl herself. Bishan Singh's son, sorry, this is the last king, uh, Bishan Singh's son, Bhin Singh, uh, continued his family's program of patronage and avert connoisseurship uh, in the 1790s. In 1796, he commissioned a music treatise, the Raga Kutahala, um, composed by the poet Radhakrishna. Radhakrishna tells his readers that he was a Ghor Brahmin from Jainagar, um, and I can talk about where that might be later. There are a few theories. The text is written, again, in elegant Brajbasha, with imagery consistent with typical Riti conventions. As with the Suratarangha of Banara, the treatise begins with verses celebrating the king of Uniara. Uh, the Prashasti verses, again, make several claims about the ruler and his territory, elevating a, a rural king into an urbane sophisticate with, again, important genealogical connections. The king is a connoisseur and virtuous being, delightful to the discerning and terrible to his enemies, a proud member of the solar dynasty, which is underlined a couple of times in the text, uh, as a kachvaha and a naruka, and also as a pious Krishna bhakta. So he's making so many different kinds of affiliation to, to, peop uh, to potential allies through this text. The poet then provides an overview of music theory, again, including the telltale signs of a flawed singer, in greater detail than our earlier example from Banara, but still very much summarizing what's there in the Sanskrit. Again, his primary interest is in iconographic descriptions, visualizing the notes themselves, and then going through the 36 rags and raganis. 
The Rag descriptions covered many topics, but in the main described men and women in the form of the archetypal Nayak and Nayaka. Many of the descriptions of men were portraits of ideal masculinity, diagnosing the symptoms of valor, viraras, and dignified repose. And I have one example from this. And so this is uh, Malkosh uh, Rag, um, for those of you who are familiar with that. Uh, his body is taut with the vigor of youth. He is intoxicated with heroic rust, yet he remains clear-headed. He bears a sword in his hand with grace. His red garment strips coral of its luster. Well-versed in the arts of love and sex, his eyes fill up with the incomparable beauty he sees. This is Malkosh, consumed by passion. He takes pleasure in delighting women's hearts. Like the portraits of his father, Bishan Singh, this description explores the qualities of the paradigmatic, cultivated man through his body and his temperament. His youthful form is ripe with potential and youthful energy, yet he remains poised. He is armed, but his sword does not need to be deployed. He is the discerning enjoyer of beauty and has the adept skills to delight the women who are enamored with him. These ideals have to be read in relation to the first verses of the work, which praise Bhim Singh. The Ragamala verses are not simply abstract ideas, but describe the worldview of the court and prescribe how Bhim Singh should be seen, projecting him into the template of the Nayak and the Rag. By examining Uniara's rulers in terms of portraiture, Ragamala painting and poetry, musicological treatises and the family histories of hereditary musicians, it is apparent that the court took its investment in the arts extremely seriously. Works of music, literature or art were highly coded, celebrating the patron in terms of love and war in a language consistent with that of other Rajput rulers. This preoccupation with aesthetics went deeper than the legitimation of rule through praise, but rather indicates a Rajput ideal, which I have called the aesthetic of projection. Elite men aspired to achieve a heightened, mannered existence and use literary and musical tools to ornament their experience. So a few concluding thoughts to, to tie this together. Um, one, one conclusion is about methodology. And um, I think what I've tried to do here is to stress the importance of reading different kinds of texts together. Historical chronicles and early modern literary modes of political criticism need to be read alongside texts and objects relating to the arts, since the pre-modern political imagination was cultivated in conversation with aesthetics. Aspects of this courtly preoccupation with beauty were clearly informed by much older ideology described and prescribed in Sanskrit literature from the Gupta period. But this was clearly not a timeless continuum either. These Rajput materials reflect new aesthetic possibilities posed by vernacular literature, a Vaishnava imaginaire which has been shaped by the ascendancy of the cult of Krishna from the 16th century onwards the adoption of Mughal portraiture, and the longer legacy of sultanate, Mughal, and Deccani traditions of rulers engaging with musicology. This royal pursuit of projecting oneself into an aesthetically saturated universe was extremely widespread and certainly not limited to Rajput rulers. So just these two examples, Savant Singh of Kishangar is an excellent example, but there is evidence of the same principle operating in Murshidabad in the 1750s, when Nawab Sirajuddullah had himself painted as the Nayak in a Ragamala series. 
At the same time, in my reading of musicological texts as political literature, I've argued that we must consider the local history and immediate provenance of these works, since the preparation of these objects may have been considered strategic or responsive to a situation. Another area, and this is my final thought on this, is uh, another area that I'm investigating is the reception history of this aesthetic in the 19th century and how the relationship between politics and intellectual disciplines relating to the arts was transformed under colonialism. I won't discuss this here, but I thought I would mention one final text, which is an Urdu manuscript, a uh, miscellany in the British Library called Razat Afsa, uh, Promoting Ease. This is a manuscript, like I say, from around 1850 and covers 20 useful topics, such as rules of procedure in civil, criminal and revenue, uh, and revenue courts, the measurement of ditches, mechanics, lawsuits, but then also Arabic prosody, uh, astrology, and music. That music continued to be included in handbooks for local administrators in the mid-19th century gestures to the prevalence of aesthetics in thinking about government and raises questions about how elite intellectual cultures were renegotiated in British India. Thank you. Thank you.